do you then problematize and say if this weapon was used against or to subjugate a people, then it mustn't be there. So the starting point is to use the same tools in order to fight or to reorient or to question or to challenge the same kind of status quo. So absolutely no problem with using the term artistic research because it is artistic research in the sense that it is the domain or the soft power in which contestations, resistance, reformations or reimagining the future of Africa can be articulated in those kinds of avenues. So I use artistic research in a very positive sense and I give it uh, several dimensions in which it can be understood. Welcome to the latest podcast in our Arts Research Africa dialogue series. These dialogues are intended to stimulate practice, enable research and inspire collective engagement around the question of artistic research in Africa. I'm Professor Christoph Doherty, the Head of Artistic Research in the Witt School of Arts. In this dialogue, I'll be speaking to Professor Samuel Ravengai, a leading exponent of artistic research into African modes of performance and theatre making, a multifaceted mode of inquiry that he theorizes as Afro-Sinology. Samuel is a Zimbabwean-born South African-based theatre director with a doctorate in theatre and performance from the University of Cape Town. He was most recently the head of the Department of Theatre and Performance in the Witt School of Arts and has just been appointed as the editor of the South African Theatre Journal. He has also just co-edited with Owen Cedar an important collection of essays in the Palgrave Macmillan Contemporary Performance Interaction Series entitled Theatre from Rhodesia to Zimbabwe with the subtitle Hegenomy, Identity and a Contested Post-Colony. The collection encompasses many of Samuel's wide interests, which span both research and creative work in the areas of theatre making, directing, theatre historiography, critical theory, post-colonial, decolonial theory, performance analysis, cultural studies, performance art, site-specific theatre, race, cultural identity and African studies. In this aura dialogue, we discuss Samuel's personal background, his studies and professional work, we unpack his theory of Afro-Sinology and its application in the Witt School of Arts, where Samuel led the transformation of the old drama department into a department of theatre and performance. We also look at his new book on the emergence of Zimbabwean theatre in the context of the post-colony. Finally, we explore Samuel's perspective as a Zimbabwean on the possibilities of pan-African engagement and the kind of networks necessary to foster artistic research across the continent. Samuel, very nice that we can sit down virtually and have this conversation. I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time. Your paper that you gave at the ARA conference in 2020, I thought was very interesting. And of course, I've also noticed a lot of the other work that you've been doing related to the notion of concept that you've put forward of Afro-Sinology. But before we get onto that, I really wanted to know about your personal trajectory. How have you got to the point that you have here in Johannesburg as an associate professor in the Witt School of Arts? How have you got to this point and what has informed your thinking? I was born 51 years ago, 15th of October, 1970. <laughs> That's a long time ago. Uh, and I started schooling in the late 70s and went to boarding school at the Lutheran Mission School. 
where I followed the Cambridge kind of school curriculum right from O level and A level and enrolled uh, to do my BA in theater and performance in 1992. So how did I become what I am? So briefly, five years when I was born, there was a coup in Portugal in 1975, giving Zanla uh, and Zipra uh, guerrilla fighters the opportunity to penetrate from Zambia and Mozambique. So 1975, they started infiltrating into what was then southern Rhodesia. And the foremost uh, kind of mobilization, which they did, was to do all-night vigils called Pungwe at that particular time. And that formed my, my way of doing theater. So that sort of mobilization included songs, dancing, uh, mock battles, ululations, chanting, all manner of uh, non-realist kind of uh, performance that you find these days on stage. And I noticed that this was something unique, which spoke to the kinds of uh, performance culture that we had when we retreated from school, going back to the village. And then when I joined the school system, the dramatic curriculum was totally different, which is uh, drama in the Western sense. I enjoyed it. I played Macbeth. I still remember, you know, <laughs> lines from Macbeth. It was really wonderful. And then when I joined the University of Cape Town in 2000, February, the underlying thing was starting from self. And I started being asked, where do you come from? How does your culture, your playing culture influence the way you do theater? There was that deliberate kind of provocation to connect with who you are. Uh, and that's when I started writing a play using non-realist forms. And my fallback program was to rethink and connect with those kinds of performances that happened uh, many years ago uh, during the war. And I started thinking about giving them concepts and names and terms so that we could, what's the word that they use, create an intellectual language or conceptual language theory around what they were doing. And that became my, my interest. So I just found that it wasn't just something that happened in isolation at that particular time. When I look at most African writing and performances, they revolve around the same concept, which is now sometimes called post-dramatic theater, which I call Afro-Sinology. So I found out that it was a widespread phenomenon, not just what we were doing in 1975 up to 1980. So that kind of formed my consciousness. And when I started reading plays like Waza Albert, uh, going to the market theater or looking what Mark Fleshman was doing, uh, and many other kinds of performances, it resonated with what I was seeing at that particular time. So that formed my intellectual trajectory, and that's where I'm sitting now trying to form an academic language around that kind of practice. Thank you, Samuel. One thing that struck me about your paper at the ARA conference in 2020 was your very positive deployment of the term artistic research. You know, there have been some voices here in the African context that have been critical of the term artistic research and that it's too European. It comes to us with a European genealogy. Even the notion of artistic is perhaps compromised because of the way in which colonial powers used the notion of art to basically downgrade and exclude African cultural practices, indigenous cultural practices. But you use artistic research, I thought, in a very positive way, in a way that 
actively seeks to reposition and center African performance modes in the university. Can you speak to your use of the concept of artistic research in your intellectual project? Well, absolutely. Maybe let me begin with the background. The whole notion of colonization is a two-pronged approach. The first approach is the violent one, sometimes subsumed under the term rule, where somebody, a colonial master, dominates another violently by the way of a gun, any other coercive forces like use of the police, the intelligence, and so on and so on, in order to subdue a people. That's one version of colonialism. The other one is the soft power, which ultimately uses the notion of culture. So everything that is subsumed under that term, which is film, fine arts, digital arts, theater performance, you name it, uh, is what was then used to supplant what was there in order to replace it with something that was a bit foreign. So the starting point is, do you then problematize and say if this weapon was used against or to subjugate a people, then it mustn't be, be there. So the starting point is to use the same tools in order to, to fight or to reorient or to question or to challenge the same kind of status quo. So I have absolutely no problem with using the term artistic research because it is artistic research in the sense that it is the domain or the soft power in which contestations, resistance, reformations, or re reimagining the future of Africa can be articulated in those kinds of avenues. So I use um, artistic research, research in a very positive sense and I give it uh, several dimensions in which it can be understood. And I'm sure we can talk more about that um, when you ask me questions around that phenomenon. So for me, artistic research, yes, it is that colonial baggage, but at the same time, it is the same space where contestations can really take place. If you, if you try to do it otherwise, it means the war, the battle, culturally speaking, is not over until that space is uh, diluted or balanced or contested in very interesting ways, like in the way in which we do in the academy. No, thank you. So, Samuel, could you talk us through how you arrived at the concept of Afrosynology, what it means and what the implications are for the teaching and research into performance here in Africa? For me, Crystal, theory comes from practice, uh, and it comes back to guide practice. So the starting point is perhaps the question, has there been any artistic practice in Africa? The answer is a resounding yes from time immemorial. And we now know from several colleagues we have researched in this area that notions of military drills, notions of ritual performance, notions of uh, celebrations and ceremony, pomp and fanfare, all those characterize the ways in which Africans were doing performance. So the question is, if performance has been happening in Africa since time immemorial, where is the theory that comes from the practice? So for me, that has been a source of irritation in my academic writing. There is no theory that explains the way we do Rosa Albert, uh, that explains the way we do most plays that we see at the market theater that do not follow a realist approach. There are no theories that speak to what Mark Fleshman is doing in Cape Town and many of the other works that my colleagues in the theater and performance department like Hafela and Prince Lamla are doing. 
Where is that theory? So for me, the starting point was looking at this work and say, what are its characteristics and what concepts can I generate in order to speak to the lack of terminology and the lack of concepts that can speak to this kind of work? That's when the notion of Afrosynology was birthed. Actually, I can go back a little bit into history by referring to my experience at the University of Cape Town in 2000. I was asked by a Nigerian external examiner, Kole Omotosho, whether what I was writing had connections to any of the things that was happening in my performance culture. And I said, yes. So he said, what do you call that? What's the concept? What are the words? And I had the practice and I didn't have the terms. So I took that as a burden. In fact, I wrote at the end of my thesis that we need new terminology and new theories to speak to this kind of work that Kole Omotosho has mentioned. And for me, I started really thinking deep about how to do that. It was followed practically in 2011 when we produced our first edited collection with uh, Kenny Ebon from Nigeria. It's called Trends in 21st Century Theatre Performance, African Theatre. And I then contributed a chapter which spoke to the dilemma of the African body in the context of Western training. So that kind of uh, set the stage or the background to developing this theory. So from there, I didn't stop. I started writing. And maybe if you could articulate the position you reached, and I understand it's an ongoing project, if you could articulate what is meant and understood by Afrosynology, what content so far have you elaborated from your research into these actual theatrical practices that are outside of the Western realist model? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So my starting point was a 1995 paper by a French academic who coined the word ethnosynology to talk about non-Western ways of performance. And the major turning point was that most of the examples that he then proffered were taken from Latin America and Asia. And again, I thought Africa was missing. So I then decided to use the suffix of the theory and combine it with Africa to make it Afrosynology so that I could center the discourses that come from Africa into that. So Afro, which is the prefix of the term or the prefix of the theory, denotes or evokes a deep interest in Africa by anyone who is African or anybody who is approaching studies of African performance, um, and I call them Africanists. So the conjoining of the term Afro and Sinology brings about the birth of this theory. So Sinology does not appear in the English vocabulary currently. I understand in, in, uh, in Eastern Europe it exists, I think, in some kind of Russian word, sinology or something like that, but English doesn't have that. So logi is a suffix that English uses to denote or to give to a new field of study so that more work can, can come into that. Uh, and you find this in sociology, neurology, whatever the case may be. So I decided to coin this new term to talk about Africa. So what has been covered so far? First of all, there is a sense in which performance and the text 
are not the same. So I'm producing a theory for the text. Maybe I should begin there. How does the theatric theory of Afro-Sinology looks like? And I want to say this in comparison to the same schema that has happened in the Western world, where Aristotle, based on the examples of his contemporaries, established what he called dramatic theory, mainly composed of uh, exposition, rising action, climax, denouement, and then resolution at the end. So I'm saying the African text, particularly those that were produced within the university context and those that were produced within the workshop environment, have got particular characteristics that I can use, and I call that the African canon, that I can use in order to extrapolate or take out, tease out, a few things that look the same. So here's what I've looked at in terms of the text. I consider the text as composed of a series of semi-secular structures, and I call them compressions because they don't lead to a resolution. Now, when there is a compression, it means something is happening which does not lead to a resolution at some point. In fact, it leads to what I've called a deformation at the end of a semicircular structure. And at the end of a deformation, another compression begins, which leads to a deformation. After the deformation, another compression begins. So the number of compressions is infinite, is dependent on the playwright, because I've not seen a play that says two or three or four. It is dependent on the theater maker and how long they would like their show to look like. So structurally, which is different from the dramatic theory, I consider this as exposition, which is at the beginning, compression, a deformation, which reproduces itself until the playwright or the theater maker reaches some kind of conclusion. That is the textual uh, theory of Afro-Sinology. Now, let's go to the performed version of theater. Now, when I look at a variety of plays that were produced using, well, this concept, although it didn't exist, although it existed in practice, I see specific features, which is number one, there is insistence or making use of uh, a narrator, and I call the narrator a sarungano, owner of the story. When the storyteller is one, I call them a sarungano, which is one. There is the option of beginning with multiple numbers of storytellers, which would be, in the Western sense, a chorus. But because they perform in a different way, I use the term ngonjera, which is a Swahili word. Swahili is a language that is spoken, that is spoken throughout Africa, particularly East Africa and West Africa. It's ngonjera. They introduce the characters, they introduce the story. And from time to time, the Sarungano storyteller Ngonjera, depending on what the playwright or the theater maker is using, comes to perform to the audience as opposed to perform to one another. They are facing the audience in a kind of non-realist way and performing themselves as opposed to performing a character. So there is more presence or more presentational kind of performance as opposed to representation where somebody is lost in somebody phenotype uh, and accent and physiology and all those kinds of things. The person is closer to themselves while they are dancing, while they are speaking to the audience. So I consider that as a contrast between representational forms and presentational forms. 
Now, from there, I noticed another very important aspect, which I've called uh, Afrosomic Mime. Because the African performance does not use the set as we know it in the Western sense, such as if it is a living room, it must have so far as a television reproducing a very similitude that we find in real life and transplanting that onto the stage. We don't find that open in most African performances based on the plays that I've read and that I've watched. So the locale or the atmosphere is produced by the living body, the warm body that is on stage. And if it is in a forest, it is the voice that produces the chirping of birds or the winds. Or if anything that they're supposed to be holding in a hand like a cigarette or lighting a cigarette, all that is produced by the mouth by going kocha. So Afro in the sense that there's a deep commitment to Africa. Somic in the sense that the locale is created through the sounds that are created by the body and then they mime that aspect. So everything that we don't see is mimed by the living body. In other words, theater is capable of producing any phenomenon that we want using the concept of Afrosomic man. Uh, let me move to the next aspect. I think this one was developed by Ngugi Wafiong in his uh, seminal book called Decolonizing the mind. And he says that African theater has got its language and it is performed through three languages, which is essentially dance, song, and mime. So those three concepts are not mine. They were developed by Ngugi Wathiong uh, in 1982 when he wrote that particular play. So I'm happy to take them on board and add them to the aspects of uh, this Afrosynology. So that's where I'm sitting from a performance point of view at this particular moment. I am supervising a PhD student who is very mesmerized by the concept of Afrosynology. His name is Kamukhelo Molebe, and he has uh, extended the aspect of Afrosynology to movement and dance. And he calls this fourth or probably fifth uh, tenet of Afrosynology choreocentrism. What does he mean by that? He means that uh, the students when they come to the academy, bring something with them that they've learned from the township dances, uh, from the songs. And I think the concept is called a playing culture, where they come from. So when they come to the academy, that knowledge is not useless. He wants to capitalize on that knowledge and generate movement from what students already possess in their embodied knowledge. Uh, and he calls that uh, uh, you know, a choreocentrism. So I'm, I'm interested to see how colleagues interested in the same concept will develop this theory in the different dimensions such as design, dance, and so on and so on. And that's how theories grow. Uh, and then we credit uh, so and so to have added this tenant to this theory, so and so to have added that and so on and so on. You know, like we see in post-colonial theory, uh, not all of it was produced by one person. You propose it uh, maybe with four or five aspects, then other people add on and argue uh, according to the discipline where they're coming from, and then it becomes a fully-fledged theory in that way. So that's why we are sitting from an Afro-Synology point of view, Christian. Samuel, thank you. That helps me understand a lot better. What intrigues me, and I think is very important, is the way that you have led the transformation of what was a very long-established drama department adverts, and have transformed that into what is now 
as we know, the Department of Theatre and Performance. And to what degree was that transformation informed by a theory of Afro-Synology? And how has it actually changed? Well, again, I borrow a theoretical concept here from um, Molefe Asante, who writes on a theory that he calls Afrocentricity, not to be confused with Afrocentrism, which would be the opposite of uh, Eurocentrism. And we know all these isms are not great. Okay, so one theoretical tenet of uh, Afrocentricity is what Molefe calls lexical refinement. We are guided in terms of what we do by how we think. In other words, in other words, when I have a house girl, even if she is 50 or 40, I will treat her like a girl. If I have a houseboy, even if he is 40 or 50, I will treat him like a boy. So the manner in which we conceptualize and articulate our ideas informs how we act. So definitely, the major part of decolonization has to concern itself with refining the lexis that we use. So what is wrong with drama? Drama is great. We were all brought on drama, but drama is a particular way of doing theater, which is centered around the Aristotelian understanding of uh, theater, which is basically you know, a realist or any play that is informed by his theories of drama. But we do know that that does not explain everything that happens in the world, in Latin America, in India, in Africa, and so on and so on. So which other terms are more inclusive than drama? To my understanding, theater and performance will do that. It means that we can do plays that are over and beyond those that are in the Western canon. Our understanding of drama, we can include Rosa Albert, we can include uh, Trauma Center, we can include most plays from West Africa, we can include performances from India, and so on and so on. Um, so for us, that was the starting point of uh, refining the lexis that we use. Not only in the department, but in the courses that we are offering. You will understand that we have dropped acting from our vocabulary. We are now using performance practice in the sense that acting is a particular way of performance, ne? Ne? which is not all-inclusive. One would use, for instance, Stanislavist psychosystem or its Western variations in order to train actors. However, uh, since I was talking about African theatre as being characterized by song, dance, and mime, you will notice that all these aspects are not catered for in the psychotechnique per se. So we then decided to say, well, we are training performers who are capable of singing, who are capable of dancing, who are capable of acting, and acting is also a part of that inclusive term. It's not excluded. That's the state of affairs, right, from first year up, up to fourth year. The same thing with the academic major. We have shifted from drama and film to theater arts, and we theme it according to the content that we'll be covering in each particular semester. So that's the basis on which um, we have created these courses. And again, you will understand that uh, all degrees will be named after the department. So instead of uh, BADA or MADA, MA in Dramatic Arts, all our degrees are going to be a Bachelor of Arts in Theatre and Performance, Master of Arts in Theatre and Performance. And of course, the PhD is owned by the university. I think it's just a PhD. <laughs> so that's the basis of how we came to think around the notion of lexical refinement in order to decolonize conceptually, the way we think and the way we do things within the department. That's what happened. 
And what changes did you institute into the actual teaching? You, you mentioned, for instance, acting is no longer given priority in the program. Can you broadly survey what this transformed curriculum looks like? I'm, I'm happy to speak to that. So, first year, we want to make everybody feel comfortable when they come to the academy. So, first years will not dive straight into the psychotechnique of Stanislavski. They will be asked to come to the, to the laboratory with only their black t-shirt and tight pants. In other words, we don't use no costume whatsoever because the emphasis is on the body that is generating the images. All right. So instead of Western modes of training, we take them through presentational modes of training. Basically, it is making use of published African stories with a bias towards South Africa. And then they adapt the short stories themselves. And on the floor in the studio, they perform these short stories without recourse to costume, without recourse to, to design, uh, such as creating a set for that kind of performance. Everything is produced by the body. You can see that it is speaking to the concepts of Afro-Synology that I was talking about. So that's the first semester. Now, because every aspect of training is important, we did not or do not wish to jettison acting whatsoever from the curriculum. Uh, we believe that the starting point is starting from Africa, radiating outwards, and then the students make connections themselves rather than us imposing what is important. So the second semester, the students uh, will then shift to Stanislavsk, which is the psychotechnic Western methods of training. But we do understand that every knowledge regime radiates a particular discourse, a particular ideology. And then, therefore, Stanislavsk needs to be decolonized in order to make him palatable to the students. So what are we, or how do we decolonize Stanislavsk? By using exercises that we generate here in South Africa, as opposed to his exercises, by allowing conception of character not only through emotional memory, which he proposes, but also through African ways of generating character, which is starting with action. For instance, if I am hit by a car, what begins first, sweating or the action? <laughs> so we begin with running away from the car, jumping, and after the fact, the emotions come. So we begin by taking the students through those ways of uh, generating character from outside as opposed to cerebral ways of generating character uh, foregrounded by Stanislavsk. So that's one of the ways in which we try to decolonize Stanislavsk by localizing some of his methods. And of course, those that don't need decolonization are taken as they are, which is investing in the text, investigating the bits or series of objectives that a character would like to achieve. That's all fantastic. Actually, you can use that in the African plays, we all work with objectives. It's not just a futile exercise of acting without pursuing a particular objective. So they do that. So the underlying thing here is that every aspect of knowledge is important, but we have to understand where it's coming from, where it needs decolonization, we do that. We also use plays from the West. You will understand that in 2015, I did uh, Oedipus Rex. It's written by those Greek philosophers. <laughs> but then how do you make the text African? Because it talks about the spirit world, I say, well, there's lots of the spirit world in Africa, 
can I choose the equivalent characters from the African world? So for instance, where he is an oracle, I bring a Sangoma because both of them do the same thing. Where he does his own dialogue, I bring the rituals which a Sangoma does in that particular play. Where he has the chorus, I bring in the Imbongi. Is Imbongi are those people that praise the king. So I bring the same characters, but using African equivalents to create a sense that it is happening in Africa. So we call that transposition. Instead of getting the play with white characters, we Africanize the play by bringing the African equivalents. And that's how uh, we make the text palatable to most of the students that attend our, our particular place. So it's not saying that knowledge is not useful, but how can we make it useful within our context? And that forms the basis on which we create our syllabus and to create our productions within the department. Yeah, I think the real strength of your approach and the approach you've taken with the department is this insistence that it must be centered here in Africa. And there must be that understanding of where we centered. And from that position, it's possible to engage with classical Greek tragic text, for instance, or even more contemporary text. Could you imagine a, a Chekhov being reworked in a similar way from the perspective of informed by afro -synology? Well, absolutely. That was my motivation because you find Western scholars go to China to mine techniques such as Brecht, and he creates um, what he calls the Brechtian technique, you know, a Western, no credit to China. And then you get um, people like Peter Brook who go to India, harvest uh, the Mahabharat story, uh, and then you create what we call these days uh, modernism or postmodernist performance, no credit to the Indians. So I said, well, we can do the same thing here. Go steal, go take uh, the, the, the text, check over whatever, whatever you want, and create theories out of that. So there's a whole lot of writing. I think I wrote um, in the conversation in 2015 about how to undergo that kind of process after doing money Oedipus, which was taken from uh, Oedipus Rex. So in other words, you can do any text, not just Greek classics, Chekhov, Shakespeare, in the Afro-Sinological way, because Africa is important to us. Just like Peter Brook, just like Brecht has done with those kinds of techniques that they harvested from China and from India, Africa can do the same. Uh, after all, we live in a global village where you know, uh, you take there, you take there and create what suits you in your own context. So I consider this as a fair game, Christian. <laughs> Samuel, just before we move on to, to more general topics and your book, which I'm, I'm very keen for us to, to hear more about, your most recent book, in your own practice, another, I think, very challenging figure who you've worked with is Dambazu Marachira, the Zimbabwean poet, playwright, iconoclast. How do you see a figure like Dambodumarachira from the perspective of Afro-Sonology? He was quite dismissive of critics and other writers who tried to position him as African. He felt that was restrictive of his, his personal genius, his personal spirit. Just very interested to hear what you think about that, particularly since you have actually, I know, uh, realized some of his plays, most recently a, year, a couple of years back. Yes, actually, uh, in his own words, he says you cannot be a Shona writer or an African writer 
you are just a writer. If you are any of those labels and then uses a say word that I can't repeat on, on podcast. <laughs> and his writing is based on the free thinking of Europe, which they now call an anarchism. He was an anarchist. He didn't want to be contained by any theory. He didn't want to be contained by any ideology whatsoever. He was a free spirit who wanted to write as he pleased. And certainly when you look at his work, he observes no rule whatsoever. He doesn't want to be African, and neither does he want to be European, or anything for that matter. He just wants to be himself. So I found some very interesting things that he wrote. When I moved to his writing, I figured out that although critics lump him in the modernist scheme of things, modernism is a broad term that simply says observe no rules, and he was choosing not to observe them. Now, when I looked at his plays, particularly the two that I did, which I called Marichara Sketches, I figured out that they could be seen as absurd plays, which is modernist. But when you look closely at the writing and how he proposed that kind of work, it doesn't fit any tenant of absurd theatre whatsoever, because he's writing from a particular context, in this case Zimbabwe. Now, he was a hobo, no house, no place to live, and he lived in the streets. And then he wrote about himself experiencing that kind of life in the streets. No, you don't observe no rules there. So therefore, when the writing comes across to me, it is not observed at all. It is himself who is not observing any rules. So I go to the notion of where is this coming from? Because he was staying with uh, ex-Rhodesian soldiers who were also roaming the streets, who were suffering from post-traumatic disorders. Himself, the same thing. How do we define this process from an African perspective? So I figured out that what is called post-traumatic disorder has happened to most comrades who went to war. The white colleagues would go to a hospital and be given antidepressants and so on and so on so that they can come back, join normal life. The black brothers and sisters would go a car home and would have their blood, which they spilled, cleansed through a lot of rituals, and then they reintegrated back into the community. Two different ways of approaching the same phenomenon, but producing the same results, which is normalizing the abnormal. Right. So who are these characters? I see them as being obsessed by the spirits of people that, that they've killed or that they encountered with. And there's a certain cosmographical way of understanding that way of writing, which is located within Africa as opposed to absurd characters. So I've begun developing an interest in that kind of writing, where I'm saying, do we have African models of characters who emanate or who write or perform from this particular perspective? And I've called, and thank you for asking that question, I've called that kind of writing or theater, rombe theater or rhombic theater. Now, what are the characteristics of rhombic theater? And where am I getting the term rhombic? A Portuguese missionary went down as far as Mozambique and discovered that there were rhombic characters who populated the king's court, Munumtapa, at that particular state in the 15th century. And they amused the crowds by doing foolish things, rolling and painting their faces, you know, doing the abnormal. <laughs> so I said, yeah, do we have the same word 
in African languages nowadays over and above the 15th century observation by a Portuguese missionary. Yes, the word rombe still exists and it defines people who, who just roam the streets and do nothing. So you will find that there are many plays that are written using the same mod. For instance, Busman and Leana by Arthur Fugat, most of Shoyinka's plays, Dambuzo Marichera. And then I'm developing a theory around that and saying these are the roots of this kind of theater. This is where they're coming from. And if we use absurd theater theory to analyze this work, the work will be prejudiced because it isn't absurd. It's coming from the locality or from the context in which it, in which it was generated. That's my obsession with rombe or rhombic theater in order to understand that kind of work. <laughs> Okay. I don't know whether Dambatu would curse you or celebrate you for having successfully Africanized him. <laughs> but Samuel, on to your latest book. This is the collection of essays that you've co-edited with your colleague Owen Cedar, entitled Theatre from Rhodesia to Zimbabwe, subtitled Hegemony, Identity and a Contested Post-Colony. And in it, you trace out a narrative of theatre performance that has emerged in Zimbabwe during the period of transition. In fact, you only follow it up to the year 2009, the year of the Government of National Unity, when MDC, for you know the various perspectives on how successful that was, whether MDC uh, joined joined the Zanu PF government in this unity government to try and stabilize the economy, which of course at that stage was running to record levels of inflation and with all the associated social damage and suffering. Can you talk more about the book? which came out in July under Palgrave Macmillan, and how that relates to the project of Afrosynology that you've been pursuing here at WITS. Thank you for asking that question. Um, the book is an endeavor to respond to a specific situation that um, obtains in Zimbabwean theater writing. My understanding since the 1960s up to about 1990. Six, eight books have been written on Zimbabwean theatre or some aspects of Zimbabwean theatre. Three of them uh, have no place whatsoever for African theatre makers. The other five will dwell on theatre training. For instance, Kavanagh's book on making people's theatre. I think he's developing a theatre making curriculum around his experiences with African performers. And I'm indebted to Robert McLaren, Kavanagh in terms of what he's written, which feeds into the kind of work that I'm doing now. The other works will dwell on what Drama for Life would call applied theatre, which is a, just a small aspect of Zimbabwean theatre. And uh, the, the other one by Rangaz Nyemba will deal with what he calls Shona, Shona plays, okay, which excludes other categories of performance. So we thought that there was a lacuna that needed to be filled in terms of uh, creating a holistic kind of approach to understanding Zimbabwean theatre. Uh, and we thought our, our edited collection would speak to that area, uh, which is not uh, exclusively uh, white Rhodesian, capturing Rhodesian uh, history of theatre, 
or a particular niche of performance and theater in Zimbabwe. So uh, our book, therefore, begins with everybody. Uh, if you look at the first uh, three chapters, they speak to Rhodesian discourse, which is a discourse um, generated by colonial masters that informed any kind of writing in every aspect of the arts in Zimbabwe. Uh, and then we talk about uh, not just Rhodesian discourse as an all-powerful, all-encompassing uh, ideology which, to which everybody bowed. We talk about elements within the white community who spoke against it. This is chapter two, uh, and so on and so on. And then we talk about other kinds of theater and performance that obtained during that period, particularly training at Amakosi, and that speaks to Afro-Sinology. You know, it is not training as usual. It is a particular kind of training that uh, foregrounds the elements that I was talking about. Remember, the theory is mine, but the practice has been happening since time immemorial. So I go back to those kinds of examples and say, well, they confirm the observation that, uh, that I'm seeing uh, here uh, panning out in the way theater has been happening in, in Zimbabwe. And then uh, we solicited contributions from as far as America and Germany in the manner in which they see Zimbabwean theater. And I think our German contributor was talking about the public sphere, how theater, during moments of Robert Mugabe's uh, rule, it was used as a, a public platform, a public, public sphere to speak to the dictatorship of Robert Mugabe when all or most other channels of communication were closed out to the Zimbabwean populace. And uh, our American contributor speaks to uh, a period in 2005 when there was a sweeping or cleaning of slums in Harare, in fact, most cities in Zimbabwe, uh, and how then theater was responding to, and then how theater was responding to that kind of cleanup process that was happening. And then, um, uh, as you rightly pointed out, we end uh, during the period of 2009 when inflation slowed down. Actually, there was a rebound from there. Uh, the crisis is not over, but it simply slowed down. And we thought that was a good moment to stop this trajectory and allow other people, or maybe ourselves in future, to pick it up from there and write another collection or another book for that matter. That's what the, the, the book was interested in. Now, you were asking the question, in what way does it encompass uh, Afro-Sinology? Uh, we are foregrounding everybody, white, black, colored, whatever the case may be, in the manner in which they contributed was African theater. But we also don't forget to foreground uh, those subjects and agents who were denied space and voices uh, in the three books I mentioned at first. So there is a deliberate foregrounding, valorization, or visibilization of African works and, and African contribution to uh, the development of theater in Zimbabwe. So there's that, of course, deliberate effort to, to do that. So that's how we contribute towards this whole discourse of decolonization and Afro-Sinology. And I take the opportunity uh, in my introduction to also introduce the term so that nobody steals it. So it's now <laughs> in black and white. Uh, I'm developing and working around uh, this theory called Afro-Sinology. There it is. It's me. Duh. We put it there. <laughs> I noticed that. Samuel, since we're speaking about Zimbabwean, Zimbabwean theater, Zimbabwean experience, and obviously you are a Zimbabwean working here in South Africa at a South African university, can I ask you to reflect on the possibilities, perhaps the closing down of Pan-Africanism 
in a context, not just in South Africa, that seems to be increasingly nationalistic and hostile to the movement of peoples between different countries. Now, I'm thinking most recently we've seen that Botswana is passed legislation to prohibit a number of categories of work, including business ownership by foreigners, and that's been interpreted to mean Zimbabweans. And here in South Africa, we've seen the increasingly strident voices, you know, even in the most recent municipal elections, against non-South Africans, that Africans who aren't South African are seen as, as a problem, as an imposition, as stealing jobs and resources from South Africans. How do you see a more pan-African project in this context? Can it survive it? Is it necessary? Should we be backpedaling from that kind of vision? I see this as an antithesis to the forces that seem to be percolating right here in the continent of Africa. In January of 2021, a few months ago, I must say, the African Union established a trade center based in Ghana. I can't remember its real acronym, but the objective of the trade center is to make sure that there is trade within Africa. Africans are trading amongst themselves and that Africa is one market. Not a single president is going to negotiate with China or Europe or America for that matter. It is a single position that says Africa possesses this wealth. Uh, this is our prize. You want it, take it or leave it. So I see that as a positive step that is working towards the concept of pan-Africanism that has never happened previously. So we are going to see more and more integration taking place. And this is why I call this an antithesis. You will understand that the fathers of pan-Africanism wanted gradualism, which is creating regional blocks such as SADC, ECOWAS, East Africa, and so on and so on, so that when these regional blocks are fully developed, then there could be a final integration into a single country called the African Union with its own president. And then we can negotiate on equal terms with anybody who would like to do trade with Africa. And I think at some point there was a proposal to introduce the Afro as a currency. I don't know what happened. Now, this issue of nationalism, you are right to point it out, and I see that as, a, as an antithesis to what is happening. Look at what we're doing in terms of our decolonization. It's an all-African approach. Look at what we are doing in terms of developing theories. It's, it's an all-African approach. And I think this aspect of nationalism has its roots in Trumpism. We were well before Trump came into the world and then tried to divide the world into this is America, this uh, progressive internationalism that previous presidents had done. We're getting rid of that and focus on ourselves. And that has sparked many other nationalisms outside of America, Botswana being one of them, I think you've mentioned it, and many political parties that are emerging, Yemen Mashawa, and, and so on and so on. And I think we are going to see a number of these movements emerging in the short to long-term period. But I'm not quite sure, and I want to be optimistic here, how the whole discourse of uh, integration of Africa, uh, you know, subsumed in this African trade organizations that I mentioned, African Union and the regional blocs that must 
slowly coagulate into the African Union, how this will speak to the different smaller nationalisms that are emerging through smaller political parties that are emerging. I'm not quite sure how that's going to pan out. Probably a political scientist may guide us in terms of understanding that, but uh, that's what I see. But for me, for any philosophy, for any theory, for any idea to move forward, it must have its antithesis so that the thesis and antithesis crush each other until the final result emerges. I don't see it as there's no opposition, there's nothing, we're just going to get everything on a silver platter. So I see that as a health scenario from a theoretical point of view that something must have its contest so that its resolve and its final result must emerge out of uh, a contestation. And that's what democracy is all about, rather than, well, this is it, accept it or leave it. So I see that as very healthy. It's okay, if you ask me. <laughs> and what role in this very optimistic long-term vision that you have, what role does African theater and performance have? Do you see a, a role for a informed performance practice that's rooted in a theory of Afro-Sinology? Uh, thank you for asking that question. Um, in fact, I was asked by a colleague in the UK to write about exactly the question that you're asking me. Yes, we understand that dominions rely on what I said, rule. Uh, rule is out of fashion now, you know, the, the violent nature of conquering other people, uh, causing harm and pain and so on and so on. Dominions now evolve and advance themselves through soft power, which is basically the arts. We need the arts. So you're asking me what role is theater going to contribute towards the creation of that uh, pessimistic view of Africa? So when one looks at the practice that I mentioned at the beginning, uh, whether you go to East Africa, West Africa, Southern Africa, in the category of plays that I mentioned, those developed within the university and workshop performance, you see one way of doing theater. They didn't form a conference to say this is how we do it. All of it is informed by what somebody in Europe has called a playing culture. So when we see these trends coagulating to forming particular practices that are uniform, slightly different according to context, but globally uniform, despite the fact that they are located in different parts of Africa, we see hope in the sense that there is a kind of uniformity and uh, unity in the arts that Africa is producing, which it can then advance as a theory and contribute to the world economy of knowledge. Uh, we imbibe in Western theories such as realism, modernism, postmodernism, and so on and so on. What's the contribution of Africa towards that? So when we begin to see these practices that are similar, theorized and conceptualized in particular ways, Africa can say this is our contribution when we come to the table. Uh, and I see that as a very important aspect, using the soft power to advance a dominion in that kind of sphere. So definitely, not just theater, but the arts in general must play a very pivotal role in bringing Africa together and in creating a platform where we can articulate our views from where we stand or located in Africa and say this is our contribution. I know that it's not only theater that is doing that. Many disciplines will come up or have come up to contribute what needs to be contributed to the economy of knowledge so that we can be recognized uh, globally, not just as VIS, but as Africa, uh, as having contributed something 
to that kind of knowledge. That's my pessimistic view, Christian. <laughs> <laughs> Samuel, thank you very much. I think that's a great point to end on and a very inspiring vision for the role of a truly Africanized art practices in advancing the, this goal of Pan-Africanism, which right now seems very far away, but is certainly something to hold on to and to aspire to with a range of, of artistic practices. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you for the opportunity that you've offered me to air out my views. I hope people will like them. You've been listening to a dialogue between myself, Krista Doherty, the Head of Artistic Research in the Witt School of Arts, and my guest, Professor Samuel Ravengai from the Department of Theatre and Performance in the Witt School of Arts. This podcast was produced by Elna Schutz and was funded by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation as part of their support for Arts Research Africa project in the Witt School of Arts, University of Witt-Wadestrand, Johannesburg, South Africa. The music for this podcast was composed and performed by Lee Rosvier and is used under a Creative Commons license.